All right. Hello, and welcome to another Modest Conversation. Uh, I'm here with Brad Hargraves, a good friend I've known many years, who is a co-founder of GA and now is the founder of Common. Brad, welcome to Modest Conversations. Thank you. Excited to be here. So tell us, like, what's on your mind these days? Well, I've been thinking a lot about the future of real estate. There are a lot of different ways to take that. Obviously, at Common, we are building housing, um, specifically socially thoughtful housing, communities. Um, and I've been thinking about three big trends in the future of real estate. There's always can, three. Always right? three. Oh, you got to have three. And, and I, I, we can take this kind of wherever you want. Um, the first is the collapse of retail. So mm-hmm. with uh, you know, increasing e-commerce, with Amazon, faster delivery, uh, retail, the bottom is really falling out of it, both in urban centers yep. as well as especially in um, more suburban areas as well. Um, the second is the poverty of millennials. Millennials are the first generation in American history to be poorer than their parents. Um, what does that mean? So more yeah. of them, you know, 33% of uh, millennials actually currently live with their parents, uh, which is higher than that's ever been. Um, home ownership rates are lower than they've been in, in at, at any point in American history. Mm-hmm. Um, so what does that all mean? And what does that mean for, for the future of real estate? Um, and the third, which a lot of people are talking about, is autonomous vehicles. Yeah. Right? You can't really talk about the future of real estate and what's going on without a uh, conversation about AVs. Yeah, totally. So when you think about those three things, it almost sounds like you have of your themes, it's like there's poverty of millennials is like a today thing, yes. right? Like that is a currently true thing. The collapse of retail, I mean, I personally haven't been in a physical store in a long time and do get probably literally three Amazon orders a day yep. with a small child. That's actually the number, right? Um, that's like a tomorrow, but this year, next year thing. And then autonomous vehicles where you have like pseudo autonomous vehicles now with Uber, right? Mm-hmm. But not really autonomous vehicles. That seems like more of a thing that's like, at least in my head, a 10 to 20 year right. trend. Like how do those things, like how do you think about the staging on this and like how those things interact and compound over time? Well, I think there are first and second order uh, you know, Im- implications of each of those things. Yeah. The poverty of millennials, obviously, is is happening today, and yeah. you can see kind of lagging indicators um, of, of what's happening there. Um, but I think there are a lot of follow-on effects when you ask questions about, okay, millennials are going to start having kids. Um, what happens then? How do their behaviors change? Um, around the future of retail... Uh, I think that is happening right now. Yeah. I think you look at, you walk down a street in New York City, uh, you see a lot of vacant storefronts, uh, more vacant storefronts than you've seen in any time in recent memory. And Is that uh, statistically true? Or it is. It is true? also statistically true. <laughs> uh, no, it, and it, you feel it, but it, it, there are also stats on like, you know, a uh, number of vacant storefronts, primarily on the hottest retail corridors. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, a lot of secondary retail corridors, residential streets um, are doing fine. Mm-hmm. Um, it is things like Madison Avenue, Fifth Avenue, the Meatpacking District, where retail fits Soho, where retail vacancy is really through the roof. Yep. And then on the other side of the spectrum, um, malls. Yeah. Uh, a lot has been written about the collapse of malls. Yeah. I don't need to go into that. So it's kind of the two ends of the spectrum, the very, very high-end retail and the very, very low-end retail um, that have really, the bottom has fallen out. Well, because everything else is selling toothbrushes, right? I mean, like, and the reality is, is in my Amazon order for toothbrushes absolutely happens, but you're still going to need a toothbrush. Still going to need toothbrushes. Dwayne Reed will be fine for a while. Absolutely. I still occasionally need to run out and get baby food. You know, we're yeah. in the same place there. Yeah. So, so, but to, I mean, I mean, I think the... I don't know. So talk to me. I think those three trends are all really interesting. Like, 
you're working on obviously co-living at this Correct. point. Um, and you have kind of an interesting take on co-living where it's going for disclosure. I'm an investor in this and like really believe in it. Um, but I mean, so when you think about like the people who are coming into your, um, housing options mm-hmm. who are, you know, adopting common, yeah. um, like how do these trends like actually meaningfully impact them? Like, so let's start with the, the, the immediate one, which is like the poverty of millennials. Like are these people, are you seeing people adopting co-living who would have been in other generation been buying houses or apartments at this point, or is it a different segment? Well, I think co-living as a concept is normalized by these individuals' peers sure. who are living in situations that would not necessarily have been acceptable 20 or 30 years ago. Sure. When 20 or 30 years ago, if you were a 30-year-old doing well, you owned a home. Yep. Today, if you're a 30-year-old and you're doing well, that just means you don't live with your parents. Yep. So there's been this normalization of concepts that in the previous generation were considered weird or low end or like yeah. you weren't doing well. So like living with roommates is an example. Yeah. Um, co-living is, you could say a, a higher end serviced offering where you're still living with roommates. Um, but that's normal. Yeah. Everyone lives with roommates. Yeah, yeah. 88% of all people 18 to 34 in New York who live alone or live by themselves, like don't live with their parents, live with roommates. Yeah. So you're seeing this normalization that has a lot of implications on what kind of businesses can get built. Yeah. Interesting. But it's interesting, I mean, I don't know the history on this, but if you looked back like a hundred years ago into the era of like tenement buildings and yeah. things like that, I mean, there was always kind of, my assumption is, is that for people who could afford it, there was always kind of the flight to the suburbs to have kids, right, in, in some form or another. But like was, I'm just thinking back at least to the historical movies I've watched, right? Like where people, people were living in like effectively co-living situations absolutely. and married and kids and dead in the Lower East Side for a long time. So oh, like more was it like there was, was there just like a blip where that became unpopular and the reality people are returning to wanting the community and like accept, and the reality is because we need less stuff because so much of our identities are digital and our values are digital. Yeah. You just don't need the, the square footage. Well, I, I think not enough people are looking back, say pre-1945 um, when they try to understand how housing works. So yeah. before 1945, you know, before World War II, a lot of people, when they lived in cities, they lived in residential hotels. Yeah. Uh, they lived in, you know, if you watch an old Western movie, the saloon is actually a residential building. Hmm. There are kind of ho- residential hotel rooms upstairs, and then people come downstairs and eat in a common dining hall. I didn't realize that. Um, yeah, it's, a, it's, it's like probably the best popular culture representation of how a lot of Americans lived in cities prior to World War II, which is in residential hotels. Yep. Um, the kind of modern multifamily apartment building, which is basically a single-family house stacked on top of each other, um, didn't really arise until kind of the mid-20th century. And why did that happen? Like, what changed? Did people just get richer because America was dominating the well, world and therefore yeah. could afford it? Or what was the change? People got richer. The automobile became ubiquitous. Uh, there was a, a, a decline in kind of quality of life yep. in cities. Um, you know, there was a lot of uh, inherent racism in yep. American society as well. And you saw the integration of cities and then, you know, the following segregation of cities as people, you know, uh, a lot of white people moved out to the suburbs. Yeah. So there's a mix of kind of social and economic reasons why that happened. Yeah. Um, but really what you saw is in some ways is this blip in kind of the 50s, 60s, 70s, where the dream was to live well outside the city in the suburbs. Yep. And American cities effectively inverted. Yeah. So if you look at 
you know, Latin American cities, Asian cities, European cities. Um, in many cases, you have a wealthy inner core yep. and poorer suburbs. So yep. the further you go out of the city, the poorer it gets. American cities were kind of unique in that that trend was inverted yeah. for the better part of half a century. Right. And I think what you're seeing now is the is reversion the, of the that. The inversion. So that, yeah. that kind of speaks to a lot. I mean, you can go on sort of forever as you're very interested to talk about just the socioeconomic return, in some ways, weirdly return to normalcy of yes. co-living of kind of, and which, I mean, it, but, but it's also in some ways, I guess, a return, tell me if you think this is accurate or not, which is we went through this weird historical swing after World War II where, from a GDP perspective, which is a very flawed metric, whatever we want to look at it, we, the America, America basically dominated the global economy and probably a bunch of weird stuff happened as a result of that and the way we lived and acted. And in a lot of ways, like, while we're still a very wealthy company, like, there is kind of a return to the mean a little bit, right, which is going on. As we see the poverty millennial, there's more, like, return to the mean of millennials. Right. Um, well, I think if you look broader through... You know, say the last millennium, mm -hmm. the idea that children will always be wealthier than their parents, will always be able to buy more than their parents to live a better life than their parents, has actually not been the case. There have been kind of multi-hundred year periods. You know, look at England from uh, the late 16th century to the mid 18th century. There was a decline in average life expectancy yeah. from 55 to 30. Oof. Like that's a pain. That was decline. over the course of almost two hundred years. How much of that is war? I mean, I think. I, look, I'm with you. I think that some of these statistics get pretty messed up when you start looking at kind of the right. the, re the drivers and the reasons around them. Sure. Like in terms of the, well, we, you end up with these just so hypotheses. Yeah, I mean, it's like very hard to do that. But I think like thematically, it's like look, we lived in a period of zero economic growth as a society for like two thousand years. And then we invented, you know, industrialization changed all that for a period. I think it's, I, I personally believe there's a massive decoupling between the statements wealthier and better off because of the relevance of actual like financial means in living a good life and how that changes either with the abundance story, which is, well, it doesn't matter because we're all plenty abundant or with the fact that like the multi-currency theory, which says as social currency becomes more fungible, things like that, people hold multiple wallets. And so simply talking about financial wealth as the only wealth is a little bit myopic maybe but that said i think the point overall which is like look housing is an expensive thing there's right. you know land has been the number one thing you buy and own right for all of human history it has and been maybe the metric of success and right. you know it's hard to explain away the fact that through the past hundred years of american history it was fairly easy to buy your own piece of land right. with a house on it yeah and today it's not yeah uh, we're having to train an entire generation of Americans yeah. how they plan for their financial futures yep. without owning a piece of land. Right. Bitcoin. And we, <laughs> there you go. So fair enough. So then let's like talk about the second theme, which is like the death of retail. I mean, that's been all over been a lot of news articles recently about this. I mean, it, it intuitively makes sense to me. Um, as a consumer, but how does that directly impact kind of the real estate co-living story? Well, I think, experiential retail has to be a has to be a big part of any kind of residential community story so if you have people that are living in a, a given space a given building uh, part of the question is how can you integrate amenities and the retail space yeah um, what do you do with the retail space and this is something we're actively looking at really closely at common is what do we do with the retail spaces and the buildings we're opening up over right. the next three years Given that we're deeply concerned about how many of our developers, many of the developers out there are underwriting retail rents. Yeah. 
um, basically assuming that Amazon doesn't exist. And the problem that so you So sorry, just, just to push on that for a second. When you say they're underrating it, are they saying... Are you saying that because they believe you need retail to sell the building, they subsidize retail rents? And does that mean that... This well, I wish they did that. Okay. Uh, unfortunately, when I say underwriting, I mean what they're showing to the bank to get their construction loans, implies, to get their permanent financing, implies that Amazon doesn't exist, that they're going to continue, that retail it. rents aren't going to collapse. And when I say, when we're talking about the timing of this at the beginning of our conversation... Um, we talked about you know what's happening, what's already happened versus what's happening in the future. This, because you mentioned the, the, the news articles happening now, this is happening at this moment. Sure. It's one of those things that is a self-fulfilling prophecy. Sure. It totally is. The, every news article that comes out about declining retail rents is another nail in the coffin of retail rents because yep. what that does is it freezes the market. Sure. Nobody wants to sign a 20-year lease when there's an article every three days about retail rents coming down, about right. vacancy. Um, so the market is really frozen right now. Yeah, although, so interesting, because when you talk about, I guess, two questions on that. One is, you have developers building new buildings. Are they just building it without retail space? Is that well, the new... In some cases they are, in some cases they aren't. Yeah. I, I think it would be a shame if they built these buildings without retail space. Yeah, I, I'm a big believer in retail to create kind of vibrant communities. You need the saloon. Street level. You need the saloon. It's like yeah. you can't you can't have the, the hotel without the saloon. Um, so I think it, it does come back to experiential retail. Mm -hmm. And how do you... It kind of puts both the burden and the opportunity on retail entrepreneurs to say, how can you create an experience that Jeff Bezos can't replicate? Mm -hmm. uh, because if it's just like, hey, I need cat food. Yeah, well, it's not going to um, be cost and it's not going to be speed. Correct. You can't compete on those things. Yeah. So interesting. So then, I mean, have you seen, there's been a few companies that have been cropping up in various things that are doing kind of like the WeWork model for retail, like fast experimentation. There's also, I know, several companies that are looking at things like, um, people talk a lot about um, uh, food experience. How do you make the iteration speed on things that require physical infrastructure to move faster? Right. I mean, do you have any thoughts on, does that play into what you think the future looks like or, or shorter leases or like how, cause it clearly you're right. No one's going to sign a 20 year lease. Correct. No one's going to make that, take that, make that risk. Right. So I think you're totally right. And I'm really interested in some of these more iterative concepts. I think the question then is how do you get the, how do you tell the financing story yeah. um, to a residential or to a retail lender? Yeah to actually lend against a more experimental, a more experiential yeah. retail model. Who underwrites that? Yeah. The bank doesn't want to take that risk. The developer doesn't want to take that risk. Now you're telling me the entrepreneur doesn't want to take that risk. Who takes that risk of who's going to pay the rent for the retail so does that? I mean, is the, is the irony that the death of, of, of retail, at least in places like New York, will change the financing game enough that it'll actually drive up rents? <laughs> right someone's got to pay for the building right, right. and uh, if you're if you're talking about uh interest rates you know pricing in another 100 150 bips of risk because no one's signing a 20-year lease yeah actually it, it does that's pretty funny um which is which is kind of kooky yeah uh but might actually be where things should go yeah and i think you're seeing and there's a big political debate right now um, in the development community about how do we mitigate the impacts of gentrification. Yeah. And the most visible impact of gentrification is the displacement of legacy retail tenants. Yeah. And I, I, I actually am somewhat excited for the 
popping of this retail bubble, if you will. Yeah. Uh, because I believe it will actually slow down a lot of the more kind of per- pernicious and visible impacts of gentrification of neighborhoods, which yeah. is you kick the retail out first. Although, interestingly, on the flip side, I mean, the scary part about it experientially is, I mean, you can think about like a dystopic future where turns out you just can't get retail spaces to work that well financially. And you end up with these like, I mean, right now, you, you know, you have you have these buildings and at least there's some public access to them where all of a sudden they just become these like resident only closed access. Like you walk down Manhattan streets and you can't go in any doors. Right. It's the future right. of gated communities. Yeah. Doesn't sound great. No, doesn't sound great. I mean, I guess one solution could be you know, I know that you get tax breaks in Manhattan, for instance, for creating public spaces, right, inside buildings. It's like, actually, you could do the the regulatory version, of it, which would only make rents even more expensive, right? <laughs> right? Well, I, I think I, I, I still am optimistic about the outcomes of the retail apocalypse uh, because there are a lot of things that should be happening on a street level um, that are not happening right now. Yeah. I think a great example is childcare. Um, mm-hmm. I wrote uh, an essay a couple months ago about the challenges of starting a daycare business in New York City um, in an environment where regulatorily you really have to be on the street level. Yep. But street level retail rents are astronomical and there's no way you can underwrite it for under, say, $50,000 per child per year. <laughs> Um, which is obviously not affordable yeah. uh, to the vast, vast majority of people. So I actually think that a right-sizing of retail rents is going to enable a lot of businesses that are just currently infeasible. Yeah. Um, the question becomes, how then do we... Uh, ha- what happens to the people who are currently financing those buildings? Yeah. Um, and is there kind of a big, bloody moment of reckoning at some point? Interesting. So th- what's, let's do the third topic, which is self-driving cars. So... It's a lot of ways you can take this. this a lot is of a ways. Favorite, a favorite topic of many. <laughs> One, I'm actually curious. What's your bet on when you get true autonomous vehicles that humans are in that don't require a quote-unquote safety driver? Is that five years, ten years, twenty years? You know, or one I, year. Some people are. <laughs> I think within within certain jurisdictions, uh, it's within two to three years. Uh, define. I'm going to push on this. Define jurisdictions. Like who's going to be some some city in China? Certain cities, yeah. Okay, absolutely. Certain cities. I think broad scale adoption in the U.S. I mean, who knows? Five to ten. I think there's going to be. I think you're an optimist. I I I, I am an optimist. I'll I'll I'll, I'll own that. Yeah. Um, the. I think it does. It's very very hard to predict the impact it has on real estate, particularly in consideration of the other two things we already discussed. Yeah. Um, the fact that young people are poorer than they've ever been. Um, the first generation to be poorer than its parents. And we're not really sure what's happening with retail. Yeah. Um, and does it mean, so it certainly makes the suburbs more accessible. Yep. Does that mean people are going to go out to the suburbs um, and be even more socially isolated in an environment where retail spaces um, are less open and yep. less accommodating than they used to be. That sounds like a pretty dystopian future. Yep. Um, and what is how do, how does uh, does income play into this? Yeah. Um, how do we? What kind of products become real estate products become attractive to effectively a renting class um, when transportation is a little bit less of a barrier? Yeah, I think it's gonna be fascinating. I mean, like to me, 
I remember in the mid '90s, I was a kid, but I still was excited about it and remember it well. The whole old argument is: Does the internet make the cities or the suburbs right. more valuable? Right. Um, there are two time, two more times you're going to have. I mean, I think the answer was cities, pretty, pretty clearly, mm-hmm. right? Just because it turns out, you know, you get so much more value when you know an area around yeah. you that you can coordinate things you couldn't have coordinated before. The internet made the cities better and the suburbs worse. Weirdly. Yeah. Um, oh, I remember when everyone was saying video conferencing would make uh, everyone move well, to the suburbs exactly. and, uh, or into the country. And, and uh, right. So the well, next, that didn't happen. I mean, there are two more versions of this, or at least two more that are obvious. Like one is going to be what does VR do? Right. Right. Um, which again, same story. It sounds like a, a suburb, uh, a, a tool of the suburbs, right? Um, but it'll be interesting how that plays out. And then the second is autonomous vehicles. Um, it's really unclear to me. I mean, like, I, there are lots of arguments about when you think about the capacity of roads and where we are, what you're going to need to rebuild, et cetera, that, like, actually autonomous vehicles, until well, until they're, until a lot gets overhauled, they're just going to be a complete nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> right? Um and we'll make the George Washington Bridge impassable, right. uh, not more passable. Right. Um, it's going to be fast. Well, certainly this hybrid world where you have some human drivers and some AVs uh, is a really awkward world. Right, which will um, be most of our adult lives. Exactly. <laughs> so we're, we're, we're in for a lot of awkwardness. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I look at this and I, I'm, I, I think there are a few things that are obvious. One is that gas stations and parking garages are totally hosed. Um, gas stations, certainly. Yeah. Um, well, they're not hosed. They're so they're valuable as building real estate now. Well, sure. Okay. <laughs> actually the probably operators more... and brands of gas stations are... are uh, I actually think there's probably a play for what it's worth, just as an aside, which is true, but if almost all of them go away and some people still have cars that need fuel, have, owning the last gas station in Manhattan or, or San Francisco is going to be a pretty good business. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're about down to the last gas station in Manhattan today. <laughs> Uh, I think we have something like uh, like ten gas stations south of 125th Street in Manhattan left, so we're almost there already. Yeah, um, more due to the, uh, the 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 condo bubble than uh, than than anything to do with ABs. Sure. Um, so the the bigger questions around you know what does this mean for the investment in public transportation? Yeah. You know, the Second Avenue subway in New York City is you know is is priced at about you know what 1.6 billion a, a mile. Um, does it make sense to actually make that investment yeah. at those prices when AVs are, you know, let's say ten years away? Yeah. Um, given that that probably won't be done for another you know, five to seven years anyway, at least. So I think it raises a lot of really interesting questions around what the role of government is as well. Yeah. Um, and it smells a little bit like um, you know the whole idea of the third world leapfrogging wired phones. Right, mm-hmm. where like you basically, yeah. you know, wealthy economies spend an incredible amount of money putting wired phones everywhere, and then you know those countries that actually couldn't afford that got to skip that entire generation and go right to cell phones, far more economically efficient. I mean, maybe they all end up with the same thing, which is some countries will just never have mass transit because why would they? Right. And payment systems as well. I yeah. think uh, you know you're seeing payment systems in many developing countries move straight to a model that's kind of probably somewhere the U.S. won't be for another you know, yeah. five years. Um, you know. I, I also I look at kind of some of the new modular housing models that are now, that are coming up. That I'm excited and, about. And you know, I think about kind of what is the right use case for a lot of these 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 modular housing that are way less expensive, that can be stacked on top of each other, that can kind of move anywhere. I mean, you know, growing up in rural Arkansas, it's like, you know, we called those double wides. <laughs> um so I, I wanna I, I kind of feel like um there is certainly a business to be taking some of these and kind of building the 
know, to, to put it bluntly, the trailer park of the future um, that is a little bit outside a major urban center that does have like amenities that you can get with land and yep. more space and lower basis. Um, so I think there's actually a lot of implications of this that of modular housing that go beyond just using kind of small spaces in urban centers. Well, I think the other question, because I, I, you're right, they're related themes. The, the modular housing and even we'll call it high end trailer park and and tent model is absolutely taking off in all sorts of places. I mean, there's a, there's a place outside of San Francisco now that is um, a high end airstream camp yep. that you can go and spend time at. There, I mean, I stayed recently for ten days in a um, a uh, movable home, we'll call it. Right, it's basically you know in, in a trailer that was extremely high end. I mean, these things as these things become nice, and I also wonder. In terms of as people, the way people value things, if a stat, if the status symbol of you know the twenty thousand square foot home goes away, people just don't care about it anymore, right? Um, all of a sudden, you live in a very interesting world. I wonder whether land actually gets more valuable, right? Because um, all of a sudden, like you don't have to build these crazy homes; you invest more in land and less in the actual physical house. Right. Um, I don't know. It's interesting. Themes, yeah, it's, it's it's definitely interesting. I mean, I'm still a believer that people are going to cluster. Yeah, that like people want to be near other people. And that that is a pretty fun Tem- temporally near each other. Though I mean, is the thing like if yeah. you can go, yeah. And that that is a that is a pretty fundamental part of the human condition. Sure. And it makes me somewhat skeptical of people who say that AVs mean we're all moving out to the burbs. Um, particularly if you're talking about that implying that a commute is sitting in a single autonomous vehicle for half hour, hour, even if it's a nice office. Uh, that just makes me skeptical of, sure, you know, but it seems like a very isolated I, I, existence. I think it's all about, it's all relative, right? So if you think about any sort of network and you want to be close to their network nodes, and right now let's pretend that being, let's pretend there were no cars and you had to run everywhere, right? So being, you know, every mile costs you seven and a half minutes of network latency, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Between yeah. two nodes. You know, the idea that you want to be close, I think makes sense. Some people will say, look, we're close enough, right? And so if I have 30 minutes and I'm running versus in a carriage versus in a car versus in a, uh, an autonomous plane, right? I don't care. It's still 30 minutes anyway you right. slice it. Right. The other way to say is like, no, 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 which I guess is your extreme with, with a common, which it says, actually, if the technology of transportation in all forms gets more efficient and better, right. all of a sudden you'll care about the difference between five minutes and one minute. Right. Right. And keep in mind that AVs make cities more efficient too. Yeah. So suddenly I'm not sitting in five-mile-an-hour traffic in New York City, yeah. uh, suddenly I have the ability to go from one place to another much faster. I can go from Midtown to the Financial District in, you know, seven, eight, nine minutes. Right. So you get a lot more effective network right. density than you have before. But I think that, I think that's what's going to be the interesting part is I actually think it's more... It's not about the absolutes. It's probably about the relative speeds between moving from suburbs to the middle of the city and then around the middle of the city. Right. Um, that'll be the maybe the interesting thing to watch is not how absolute uh, or self-driving technology or anything changes the cost and speed in an absolute sense, but in a relative sense. I completely agree. I mean, humans are bad at uh, mentally measuring absolutes. Yeah. Much better relative. Yeah. Dude, great conversation. Absolutely. It's great to see you. Thanks for having me. Till the next time. Absolutely. (laughs)